Can you guys say praise the Lord over here? <laughs> All together now. Thank you so much for making part of your holiday weekend being in church with us. I'm going to start a brand new series. And really, when I planned to start this, I didn't realize it was going to be Labor Day weekend. It, it, it snuck up on me. Or did it sneak up on me? <laughs> anyway, uh, I was a little worried that it would just be me and the choir here today. <laughs> Everybody else leaving town. So I'm really glad that I got uh, some to preach to today. Uh, I want to begin a series called Non-Toxic Masculinity. Non-Toxic Masculinity. I'm going to be preaching a message about what it means to be a man of God. And the ladies, please don't take the next few weeks off. <laughs> because I'm going to help you transform your man. I want to give you the tools. So if you're married... You take notes, and any time he acts up, say, hey, Pastor Jeff said, look. If you're not married, I'm giving you a schematic. Here's how you know when you found a winner. When he matches this description, or this is the way you, you want him to look. I noticed uh, some time ago, maybe months ago, maybe a year or two ago, I don't remember exactly when, I noticed that there was a phrase in the po political discourse called toxic masculinity. And uh, I, I wasn't sure what that meant. But being a man, I wanted to know what it meant to be toxically masculine. Now, we know that we're masculinely masculine. Oh, oh, oh you know, you know, we, we got that. You know, we know what it is to be a he-man. You know, we, we understand that. Uh, we know about the bulging biceps and bronze skin and, and, and all that. We understand how that works. But what is toxic masculinity? And it, it seems to me, and I, I Googled it, you know, and whatever's on the Internet is on the Internet. Um, and uh, sometimes they would say, well, toxic masculinity is the idea that men have got to be excessively violent or excessively sexual or excessively crude. Or, and I thought, well, I don't, yeah, that is, that is toxic. Some people, when they say toxic masculinity, they simply mean anything that is a traditional male role. Some of them have, have gone to, to that point. So I thought it would be a great, a great series to talk about non-toxic masculinity in light of what the Scripture says a man should be. And they all said, a few of them said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I agree that if by masculine you mean aggressive and violent and sexually intensive behavior, I agree that that is toxic. But I believe that God has designed men and women to be in some ways fundamentally different. And they all said, men and women are not just different in their anatomy. We learned that in biology class, right? They are fundamentally different. And the Bible has some things to say specifically to men and some things to say specifically to women. In fact, I asked the staff this, this week, I said, you think... 
Uh, after uh, I do this toxic masculinity series, should I do one about women, or dare I be that brave? <laughs> dare I even walk out on that limb? So we're still trying to discuss whether that would be wise or suicidal. But there is a difference between men and women, even though our culture is trying to tell us there is not, that some of us are, are, we're all just this group of people, some of us are anatomically different, but we're all the same. And I, and I say, I, I'm not sure about that. Guys, how many of you, when your wife is not around, sneak around and watch Say Yes to the Dress? I mean, there, <laughs> there, there's something fundamentally different about us. There is cultural confusion where I think that men are sort of moving through the American culture wondering, what is okay? What is accepted? What is right? And if I'm being a gentleman, is that toxic masculinity? If I step ahead of a woman and I open a door for her, is that being patronizing to her? Or, or is that being good manners? I was taught that that was good manners, but now I'm taught maybe I should not do that. I am, in a sense, insulting her by implying that she's not strong enough to open a door, which I, I never intended to imply that, right? You guys act more nervous than I am about this subject. I wish that I could tell you that I don't worry. I wish that I could tell you that it never stresses me. I wish that I could tell you that I, I'm always bold about these things, but I'll tell you that there are times I walk to the pulpit and I say, Oh, Lord, please help this go well. I know that I am going to say some things in this series that are politically incorrect and culturally incorrect and culturally improper. But I promise you and I invite you, if you open your Bibles with you, I will prove to you biblically the positions. I won't give you my opinion. I won't give you the opinions of my culture. I will give you what the Bible says about a man and about a woman and how we obey God in our earthly life. Amen? So let me, we have that, that, that definition. I, want, I should have put this in your notes, and I didn't. Let me give you a definition, my definition of toxic masculinity. My definition of toxic masculinity. I do believe there is toxic masculinity. This is not in your notes. You might want to scribble this down because we'll be talking about this for a few weeks here on Sunday morning. Toxic masculinity is the idea that it is, it is unmanly to say, I love you. It is unmanly to be affectionate with your kids. To lead your spouse or your children in prayer is unmanly. To be demonstrative in worship is unmanly. To be found on your knees crying out to your God is unmanly. That's toxic masculinity, amen? That's toxic masculinity. When we have the idea that the kids get their spiritual training from mama because that's a woman thing, that's toxic masculinity. When the kids get all their hugs and kisses from mama because she's the affectionate one, that is toxic masculinity. When a wife doesn't know what it is for a husband to put his arms around her and pray over her, that is toxic masculinity. Amen. That's toxic masculinity. 
when a, a guy is awkward and he cannot step up and be a man of God, a spiritual man, that is toxic masculinity. Can we just visit for a while? Maybe I'll preach next week, you know, because this is so much fun. The year was 1981. Don't do the math. I was 21 years old. I was on the top floor of Baptist Medical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, visiting my dad who was in the hospital for a chemical addiction treatment. I stood at his bedside. I'm not saying you should follow my example, but I was already married at that point. I was a married man out of his house. And I stood at his bedside, and I took him by the hand. And the very first time in my life, I heard these words come out of my daddy's mouth. I love you. The very first time I had ever heard that. It was so profound in its impact on me, it, I froze in time. I walked out of that hospital that day and I made a covenant with myself and with my God and with my future kids, none of whom were around yet. My kids will grow up with no idea when the first time their daddy told them he loved them. And my kids will never, ever be able to count the number of times their daddy told them he loved them. And they will never be able to count the number of times their daddy put his arms around them and held them. They will never be able to count that. That is not masculinity. Amen. That is not masculinity some years before then guys i'm talking to you are you getting serious sometime before then i was in the second grade i remember this very well yes there was indoor plumbing i was in the second grade i was sitting in church one sunday night about the third row back Little country church, the pews were made out of one-by-fours. You were sitting on one end and somebody got up on the other, other end, you got pinched on the bottom. Woo, glory, you know. They thought you were getting blessed. You're just getting pinched, you know. I was sitting there goofing off like second graders do and messing around, doing everything but paying attention to what was going on in churches, trying to get through because in those days, we went to church Sunday night at 6 o'clock, and sometimes it was 9 or 10 o'clock before we got out. You know, so you had to occupy yourself while everybody else, you know, had a good time. And I remember sitting on about the second or third row there next to the aisle, fidgeting, playing, goofing off, trying to be silly, and all of a sudden something profound happened. My dad, who had been seated in the back, got up and walked past me on the way to the front and dropped to his knees. And I went, oh my goodness. A God.
God that is so awesome that my dad will bow down to? That's an awesome God. That is an incredible God. If my dad, because my dad was a man's 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 man, you know, he was all of it. And to see him drop on his knees and begin to pour out his heart to God, I thought, this God has got to be awesome or my dad would never, ever bow before him. What I'm saying, Dad, is you have an awesome opportunity to reveal an awesome God to your kids simply by dropping to your knees and acknowledging how great God is. Let it be said that they saw you worshiping the one true God. Let it be said that they saw you bowing before the one true God. Let it be said that you modeled that God is awesome and I am nothing compared to him. Amen. You ready to get started now? <laughs> First of all, I'm going to have four main points, and I'm only going to do one today, and they all said... <laughs> David, I believe your home church is, is it Pleasant Valley. We're always trying to get out before the Baptists get to the food bar. Okay, so... so. First of all, the non-toxic man is a, they are men of character. And I'm going to take, when Paul is, is talking to the pastors, he's teaching Timothy and Titus, and he's telling them how to find your best men, how to find the men, the great men, the men that you should put in leadership. He gives three lists. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he gives two lists. And in, in Titus chapter 1, he gives another list. And I'm going to be pulling this series out of those lists to say, here is what a great man looks like. Biblically, here's what a great man looks like. And when you begin in Titus chapter 1, he said, he must be upright, holy, and disciplined. He must be upright, holy, and disciplined. That's the man who is a great man. He's upright, holy, and disciplined. Upright means righteous. He is a righteous man, holy, we know what that is, and he is a man who is disciplined. That literally means a man who is empowered, a man who the power of God has come into him. So every man who aspires to any level of greatness, you say, I want to be a good man, I want to be a great man, I want to be a man that God can be proud of, I want to be a man that my wife can be proud of, I want to be a man that my kids can be proud of, it begins by understanding I can never be great until God deposits his presence within me. Righteousness, holiness, and empowerment is not something that I do for myself. It's something that I experience from the hand of God. It is a miracle of God happening in my life. I'm going to talk to you over the next few weeks about this masculinity and how, the shape it should take. But I want you to know that until you understand that it begins at the feet of Jesus, you're just going to be frustrated. You're just going to try and fail. You're just going to say, I wish I could be that, but I can't. Because it begins with a supernatural, miraculous work of God in the heart of a man. Amen. 
everything we learn will frustrate you if you don't understand that simple present, present truth. That if I am going to be the man that God wants me to be, the man that my wife needs me to be, the man that my kids, now my grandkids, need me to be, it's going to begin with a work of God on the inside because I can't go get righteousness. I can't go get holiness. I can't go get power. That's something that God has to do inside of me. Amen. So it begins... At the feet of Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you some scripture, and then right at the end, I'll give you a few quick notes, all right? I just want you to know this is not the gospel according to Pastor Jeff. This is the word of God. The great man, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you? A great man is defined by his secrets. A great man is defined by his secrets. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 2, he must be above reproach. That deals with our secrets. In the original language, the idea is he must be someone that accusations don't stick to. His secrets are not his undoing. We all know, don't we, that men have their secrets. You thought you were the only one with those secrets. We all know that men have those secrets. We have those hidden compartments in our lives. We have those hidden compartments in our minds. Did stuff just get real? But the truly biblical man does not live a life that the truth will destroy. Did that make any sense? The truly biblical man does not live a life. I'm talking about our secrets now. We do not live a life that the truth revealed would destroy us. It might be embarrassing, but it wouldn't destroy us if we're living the biblical truth. I'm not talking about sins that you've repented of and got forgiveness of and it's under the blood. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a lifestyle. I'm talking about the stuff that exists now. You see, the idea, guys, that boys will be boys turns us all into hypocrites. So, the second step in being a Man of God. Remember, the, the first step is being at the feet of Jesus, getting a miracle on the inside. The second step to becoming a great man is to take a prayerful look at your secrets. What are the things you can't tell anybody about? What are the things your wife knows nothing about? What are the things your pastor knows nothing about? Take a biblical or prayerful look at your secrets and say, is this a life I can continue living or do I need God to change what's going on in my hidden life? Above reproach means that our secrets are not devastating. Our secrets won't ruin us. Amen? Aren't you glad you're here? Where else could you hear this? <laughs> oh, they're not even laughing today. It's because you're deep in thought, right? All right. A 
biblical man's words do not contradict. First Timothy 3.8. They must be men worthy of respect and sincere. Sincere is the word dialogos. In other words, to split your word. To say one thing and then say the opposite. To split your words in half. But the great man of God is sincere. He, he does not split his words. A man's word is his bond, we used to say. And the man of God, his word is still his bond. He still has integrity in what he says and what he promises and, and the commitment that he has. A biblical man's sobriety is constant. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. He must be sober-minded. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. The men, the men must not be indulging in much wine. Isn't it strange? Now, maybe you're not into linguistics, but this is to me very interesting. The non-toxic man is not intoxicated. Isn't that cute? The non-toxic man is not intoxicated. And you think about it, the word intoxicated is corrupted. When someone's intoxicated, they don't think straight. They don't behave right. They, they are not who they ought to be. They are intoxicated. Their, their mind ha is toxic now under the influence of this chemical. And he said, the great man of God is sober-minded. He does not indulge in drunkenness. He doesn't do that. Whether we might ever become good man, or dare we say great man, is determined by the reputation that we build. Our lifestyle is creating a reputation. 170 years ago when I was in college, <laughs> we, I used to have a president. His name was Maurice Lednicki. Maurice Lednecki. Can you repeat that five times? <laughs> Maurice Lednecki. He was from the Arkansas district. Yeah. Um, he used to say this. He had, every Wednesday morning he'd preach. He always preached on his toes like this. When I got out of college, I preached like that. It took me a while to break the habit. I'd seen it so much. He, one of the things he said that I never forgot all these years later, eventually what people are saying about you will be true. Eventually, what people are saying about you will be true. Now, there will be slanders and, and stupid stuff said about all of us, but generally speaking, we will build a reputation. We will interact with people. People will watch our lives, and we, from that, will build a reputation that is secure, whether that be good or whether that be bad. And friends, if the devil could destroy anything in your life right now, if, if, if there was one thing the devil could get to and wreck in your life, I believe, guys, it would be your reputation. Because if he can damage your reputation, all of your life is negated. When he comes in and corrupts your reputation, no one wants to hear anything you have to say. No one wants to know anything that you know. Your reputation is the foundation of your service to God and the effectiveness of your service to God. A, a reputation built on biblical character will lay a foundation for God to do some incredibly great things through our lives. I dare you 
do a study sometime on accusations. It is the primary spiritual weapon of the enemy, accusations. It is so powerful in the devil's arsenal that his very name means slanderer. I mean, that's his name, the devil, the slanderer. And so the devil's number one military weapon is slander. But when you are living as a man of God, slander doesn't work because your reputation overcomes the slander. It is so unbelievable of you that the devil's his attempts fall short. I'm tempted to tell you a weird story, but I don't know if you're up for it or not. How many are up for it? How many are not? If I tell you the story, will you promise to never repeat it? I don't want this going around. I don't know. My wife's out of town today. She's run to Arkansas to to get her mama to come back and spend some time with us. I think I can get away with it if y'all won't tell her. All right, all right, I won't go for it. I'll try, I'll trust you on this one. I was uh, in my 30s. I was pastoring a new church, and I had a problem. There was a couple in the church who would not um, behave. And he was an ordained minister. His wife was a witch. She didn't know it. I don't know if she ever knew it. But anyway, um, <laughs> she said witch. Did you get that right? <laughs> Every service, she had a word for us. Every service. And I was new. I didn't know what to do about it, but there was there was um, nothing blatantly unbiblical. I just it just didn't feel right. So every service we had to endure, she would stand up back there on the back row, thus saith the Lord, and then we would all get a whooping. We'd all get told how God was about to throw us all into hell if we didn't straighten up, you know. And it just sort of put a damper on. And I put up with it for a while. Again, I was new. I didn't know what the deacons would do. I didn't so but Finally, I reached the point where I was so worried with it, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I pulled her aside one week, and I said, uh, Hey, sis, you're not saying anything that is blatantly unbiblical, but I'm just not bearing witness with it. And I'm going to ask you not to speak anymore in church. As your pastor, I'm going to ask you, don't talk out in church anymore until God gives you a baptism of love for the church. Because I believe if you're going to spank someone, those spankings should only come from somebody that loves them. And they know it, right? That's true in so many ways. So 
this lady, and at the time I'm thinking, did I, did I do something terrible here? You know, have I quenched the Holy Spirit? You know, I was kind of scared. But she showed up at the next board meeting, and she stood. I don't know if I should tell you this, but I'm already here, aren't I? And um, she stood there in front of the deacons, and she prophesied that um, in spite of the fact that uh, I had a wife and three kids, that I was actually a closet homosexual. (laughs) That I was going out living this double life. Just for the record now, none of you guys are good looking at all. In fact, I don't make guys that good looking. Okay. You know. And I and what I what I did initially is I laughed. <laughs> and then I, the deacons weren't laughing and I thought, "Oh my god." And I'm like, "Did are they going to believe?" And then one of the deacons stood up and started walking toward her and he said, "Sister, he was a really gruff man. He said, "Sister, we're going to pray for you." And she left that room like it was on fire. Now I got a mess to clean up because I've got, what have I got now? I've got an accusation, you know, that's, that is being leveled against me. And I'll never forget, I walked into the children's pastor's office. I sat down. I looked across the desk at dear sister Terry Nuvaney, who has been a missionary to India now, is back home now. And I said, Terry, I, I just need to tell you, here's this accusation that's been made, and I'll never forget her reaction. <laughs> She's bust out laughing. At first, it kind of ticked me off. But then I realized that's the best thing I could ask for. It's when someone makes an accusation. People, yeah, right. That's the best thing you can ask for. Because what it says is, the accusation is so ridiculous that it doesn't even gain traction. I mean, you can accuse someone of of something else, but when you have gone this far, you've really created a situation where the accusation simply cannot stick. The best thing that can happen to you as a man of God is when an accusation floats your way and people go, oh, yeah, right. And you know why they do that? Because of your reputation. Because of your reputation. And that's what we need to build. And I didn't put this in your notes because, you know, your notes are full. But let me give you real quickly. Man, you guys are so slow today. I'm going to have to hurry up. Let me let me give you the pieces of your reputation. And you might want to scribble these down because you're going to need this to build your reputation. First Timothy chapter three verse seven says, "He must be well thought of by outsiders, so that they so he may not fall into disgrace and a snare of the devil." In other words, he says your reputation is very important. And first of all, I'm going to hurry. Here's the first piece of that reputation. First Timothy three two must be respectable. He must be respectable. 
And if you looked behind that word respectable and you saw it into the original language, it's cosmos. And it has the idea, it's where we get the idea of cosmetics. Why do women wear cosmetics? So that they look appropriate, they say. The original word means to be orderly and upright. When I am respectable, I am reacting to people around me in a way that honors them, a way that expresses value, that they are valuable. What kind of behavior is normal? That is what you're building a reputation on. How do you react to the people around you? If it's respectable, it means you are going through life honoring the people in your life. Amen? You've got to hurry up, folks. I'm telling you, Pleasant Valley will let out. Then he said, you must be hospitable. Literally means a friend of strangers. People are valuable even if we don't know them. And without a commitment to love others who cannot do anything in return, we cannot be hospitable. So we meet the needs of other people without any plan that they will ever reciprocate for us. That is being hospitable. The third part of this reputation, a great reputation flows out of maturity. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He must not be immature, literally a neophyte, a fresh sprout. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I translated the word neophyte. Some of you have novice, immature. He said when we are immature, we lose our humility. You've heard the story. Be sure you hire a teenager while they still know everything. I remember how brilliant I was in my 20s. I had all the answers. And the reason I had all the answers, I hadn't even seen most of the questions. But when you begin to see all the questions, you realize you're not really that smart after all. And this wonderful thing called humility begins to fall down upon you. And without that humility, you will fall into the trap of the enemy. Now, I have rushed. Well, I have rushed. Now, I want to give you some notes. I'm going to summarize everything I've taught here for for a little bit. The character of a non-toxic masculinity First of all, biblical masculinity begins with a miracle of righteousness, holiness, and empowerment. It begins with a miracle. Men, hear me today. The life you want begins at the feet of Jesus. The life you want begins at the feet of Jesus. I I think of so many good stories, but you're running out of time. I had a couple in, in, in marital counseling one time. And uh, I'm going to tell you the story anyway. Uh, And she said, I'm so frustrated with him. I said, well, why? What's he doing? She said, every evening, about halfway through the evening, when we're having family time and all that, she said, he peels off and goes to his man cave and reads his Bible and spends the rest of the evening praying, reading his Bible. And she said, it just frustrates me. He just abandons us. And I wanted to say, good Lord, you don't understand what you've got. You don't understand, you know, I think you women ought to get up about 
8 or 8.30 at night and say, get in your prayer cave, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be nice. Can you imagine? A man's greatness begins, the seeds of it, the genesis of it, is with a miracle of God. The further he gets away from his intimacy with Christ, the less greatness will exist in him. Encourage him to pray. Ask him to pray. Number two, a biblical man's secrets do not have power to destroy him. Right now, guys, I know I've said all this, but this is a review. I'm wrapping it up and putting a bow on it. Uh, Get along with God over the next few hours. Get along with God who already knows all of your secrets. And say, God, I don't want any secrets in my life that would ruin you. I don't want any secrets in my life that would destroy me. I don't want any hidden compartments that your light has to be kept out of. Talk to God about your secrets. God may send you to a trusted and mature brother that you can talk to and pray with about your secrets. But don't let your secrets fester and become a spiritual disease in your heart and mind. Amen? And finally, number three, a biblical man's reputation will defend him from accusations. False accusations won't stick. When an accusation cannot survive the contrast with truth, they will be rendered powerless. I want to be the kind of man that when someone comes up and says something terrible about me to you, that you'll go, yeah, right. And the only way I can be that is to build a reputation of biblical character. Biblical character. Now, in future sermons, I'm going to talk about what it means to be a family man. Talk about what it means to be a man who's incorruptible and all those things. But today, I begin this series saying, guys, God has created a plan for you to be a great man. Don't buy the lie, boys will be boys. Sometimes my wife will come to me and she'll say, explain to me how a man thinks. I say, you sure you want to go there? Explain this, explain this. Many years ago, she said to me, can I have just a minute more, Ethel? Can I have just a minute more? All right. She said, Jeff, I will follow you wherever the Lord leads you. Wherever you take me away from my mama, my daddy, everybody else. She said, I'll follow you wherever the Lord leads you. But there's one thing I require. 
she said, I do not want to worry about what's in your head. I don't want to wonder if you're thinking about someone else, wishing you were with someone else, pretending you were with someone else. I'm asking you to be faithful to me, not just with your body, but with your heart and with your mind. If I'm going to follow you wherever God sends you, I want to know that you're going to be faithful to me. I made her this promise. I will never accept a standard of purity that God will not accept for my life. When Jesus said, when a man looks lustfully upon a woman, he adulterates her in his heart. I will never accept that as boys will be boys. And any time my heart begins to go that way, I'm going to go to Jesus. And I'm going to say, Lord, help me. There is a sin nature in me that wants to stray, but there's a divine nature in me that wants to be pure. I want to follow you in that. Amen? And there's where, oh, I'm, I'm facing a wall here. All of culture tells men that impurity is just the way it is. Jesus says, come up here. Come up here and walk with me. And if there's impurity in your heart, walk closer. Walk closer. Come on. I want to be able to look my wife in the eyes and say, I only have eyes for you. I only have attraction for you. My heart is faithful to you and to my Savior. And I will not accept any other standard. And if I'm not living up to that, I'm not accepting it. I'm going to pray and say, God, bring me to that place. Have you enjoyed the sermon today? Tell your face. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Bow your heads with me, please. Every once in a while, in this life, people... come along and pin medals on us. And sometimes they say some pretty amazing things about us. But if those are authentic accolades, it's just praise that rightfully belongs to Jesus. And someone says, you profoundly affected my life. When your spouse says, I am married to a great man. When your kids say, man, I know what a great dad's like. Because Jesus did something in you. And he put greatness in you. And you followed him in that path. 
brothers, I beg you, accept nothing less. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. I'm, I'm not seeking God right now. Lord, what, how do you want to do? What do you want to do? down to your side. <laughs> Ladies, if you don't mind, kids, if you don't mind, if you reach over and just put your hand on the shoulder of the back of that man that's close to you, and will you ask Jesus to put the seeds of greatness in him? Would you ask for a miracle of greatness? He can't do it on his own. He, he's depraved. We're depraved. But the spiritual miracle of greatness can descend upon that soul and upon that mind, upon that heart, and God can start building a great man. Maybe he already has started it. Maybe it's well underway, but God is doing something. Father, I praise you these men and I'm asking you Jesus that father that husband that son who doesn't feel there's a lot of greatness in them they are condemned by their secrets I'm asking you father please cover them with your blood and make them clean and then put your spirit in them and make them strong. I praise you, Lord, that you are raising up men to be men. Warriors, husbands, fathers, sons, leaders that will walk out their faith. Lord, I ask you, that sons and daughters will see spiritual greatness in these men. That wives will see greatness in these men. May they walk in humility and yet in victory in your name. And Father, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Savior... I ask you to give them the faith right now to believe in their heart that you died for every one of their sins. And that if they'll just accept that sacrifice, believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. Thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Next week, we're going to have a lot of fun. Next week is going to get a little bit controversial, just to let you know. Hey, remember, don't tell anybody that story I told you. All right? Uh, yeah, that's all right. God bless. Hey, if you prayed to receive Christ this morning when I did the little sinner's prayer with you, please let me know because you need some help getting started. God bless you. See you next Sunday, I hope.